A psychiatric consultation record on anxiety was specifically requested by many physicians. This, then, is the first of two records dealing with anxiety as it is commonly encountered in office practice. Here to discuss this problem are members of a team of psychiatrists who teach basic psychiatry to general practitioners at one of the best-known general hospitals in the United States, and Dr. Samuel L. Fader, who has a particular concern in the problems of psychopharmacology. The first voice you hear will be that of Dr. Witten. By experience, one finds that the most common types of conditions encountered in the daily practice by the general practitioner and the internist are first, the anxiety states, second, hysteria, and third, mild endogenous depressions. Dr. Kaufman, would you tell us what is anxiety? I think one could divide anxiety into two aspects. One is a subjective one. And that subjective aspect may vary from a feeling of dread, impending doom, uneasiness, something that somebody feels. The objective aspect, again, has many manifestations. It may link up with an increased heart rate and tachycardia, gastrointestinal symptoms, difficulty in swallowing, feeling in the muscle tone, and so on. So that anxiety is akin to fear, but is not the same thing in the sense that when you fear something, there's usually an object or something that one knows about. I think the essential aspect of anxiety is that by and large, one has the subjective feeling with the objective aspects of it, and usually without any real conscious knowledge of what it is that causes this feeling. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Dr. Kleinschmidt? I would compare anxiety to pain. We all resent pain. We uh, try to do away with it as quickly as we can, but it is an indicator of something going on there. It is a physiopathological indicator. And I think anxiety has a very similar function, that of an indicator. And if we start with concern, for instance, concern is by and large a healthy, normal process, but there is a quantitative difference between concern and worry and the acute anxiety state and even panic, which then becomes quite pathological. Then, Dr. Fader, is a degree of anxiety helpful to the patient in solving a problem? Yes, of course. If an individual can't recognize that there is a problem or that there is a danger, then he loses all opportunity to either solve the problem or prepare himself for the danger. I think a world without, or a life without worry or anxiety is inconceivable to me, and at the same time, I think it would be very undesirable. Dr. Kaufman? From a psychobiological point of view, anxiety is a necessary component of living. The extent of it, however, is really what modifies the possibility of adapting or doing something about it. Now, when there is a threat, and the threat is usually an internal one, for the most part unconscious. The organism, the human being, is alerted by the signal of anxiety. It indicates the equilibrium that he has established is threatened. And therefore, anxiety may be the first indication that something is beginning to happen with that individual. What kind of anxiety, the quantity, its function in relation to him will vary with many things. As Dr. Kleinschmidt has already indicated, this may be a feeling which is akin to worry or akin to apprehension, a subject to feeling of tension in some way or another, to the full-blown panic. Now, which of these it is, 
depends upon that individual, his life experiences, and how he is able to manage things. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Now, Dr. Fader, when a patient does come to the doctor's office, can that physician assume that the patient has some anxiety? I think that it is a theoretically sound and very practical working tool for every physician to assume that every patient who comes in with whatever complaint has some element of anxiety. And the searching out of this anxiety and the estimating of what effect this anxiety may have on what the patient is talking about is an essential part of every examination. May I add Dr. one Kaufman? thing, Dr. Yes. Right. You also have to assume that the patient that does not come to the doctor's office has a great deal of anxiety. And I think this becomes a very important factor that we may lose sight of because many, many diagnoses of cancer are not made early enough because the patient has already made them and is so anxious and so fearful of what the doctor is going to say that he does not come. Dr. Kleinschmidt? Yes, uh, I wanted to uh, add something to what Dr. Kaufman was saying. I think we have two immediate problems here. One is that the patient not infrequently comes eventually after long hesitation, not unlike the defendant in court who is waiting for the judge to pronounce a verdict. So therefore, the patient, of course, has a great deal of apprehension about what the doctor is or is not going to find. Now, the second immediate problem that we encounter more and more frequently, I think, among internists and general practitioners is that the family physician, who is rather close to certain families and certain of his patients, who is their friend and not only their physician, which by and large is probably a most desirable feature, is loath to find something very dangerous and threatening to his friend and may overlook a diagnosis that he is quite skilled to make because he denies such a dreadful possibility. He doesn't want to lose his friend. Now I would like to ask a question then. Dr. Kaufman, recognizing that all of the patients that come in have some degree of anxiety, what is there about the physician that can allay this anxiety or make it worse. His attitude, for one thing, his relationship to the uh, patient, the way he takes the history, how he brings the information to the patient. There are many, many factors. I think that the best attitude for the laying of anxiety on the part of the physician is what I would call a neutral sympathetic attitude. He's there, he has a certain role, he's a magician, but if he relates to the patient with sympathy and yet not over-emotional, the neutral sympathetic attitude, I think that by itself becomes the most significant anxiety-allaying mechanism in the hands of the healer and physician. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Now, Dr. Kleinschmidt, can we uh, list a few things that a physician should avoid doing to keep from increasing the anxiety in the patient? Yes, there are certain toxic words as well. <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> this is one of them. But I would like to give an example, if I may, because it may become a little more concrete what I have in mind. Uh, there is the uh, almost recurrent observation I have made that a uh, young woman who is pregnant for the first or second or even third time and goes back to her physician, and she shows dismay. She is not very happy 
about this because the timing of her pregnancy does not seem to correspond with her own time schedule for other plans, such as going back to college or getting a job. Now, at that moment, the physician may correctly discover that his patient is not only unhappy, but tense and anxious. And the physician may turn to the patient and say so. Mrs. So-and-so, you are tense and anxious. I think this is ill-advised and ill-timed. He does not do as he believes he does, something very constructive. But if he does it in this direct manner, and often in a rather stern manner, he only increases the patient's guilt. Instead, if he sits down for only five minutes and permits this patient to talk about her plans, which now have been frustrated or had to be postponed, and tries to explain to her that it is merely a postponement, but that her integrity as a human being is not affected, but that all that she is expected to do is to tolerate the postponement, he can do much better by leaving out the two words, tense and anxious. Fine. Now, uh, Dr. Fader, this uh, opportunity for the patient to ventilate has sometimes been described as a mental catharsis. Do you have something to add to this? Yes, I'd like to add one thing about this question of catharsis. Uh, it is not necessary for it to be a catharsis in the usual sense. Uh, very often a patient's having the opportunity to make one statement will be enough. And I'll give you an example. I have been treating a woman with metastatic cancer for some two years. It was obvious to her and to me that she was getting into more and more difficulty and more and more pain. Uh, she came in one day and she sat down and she said, I hurt so much all over. And when I started to say something, she said, there's nothing for you to say, I just want you to know. I just want you to listen. And this helped her more than anything I could have done. Thank you. Now, Dr. Fader, uh, I'd like to first make a statement and then pose a question. Now, if the symptoms of anxiety are the most common symptoms of those encountered in neurotic individuals, I think it's important that we understand what are the manifestations of anxiety. Can we say, for instance, that these are the manifestations, one, two, three, four, in any way that you wish to number them? Well, we could start off with what is called manifest anxiety. Uh, the patient will come in and state simply, I feel anxious, or I feel nervous, or I feel on edge. I think all of us who have ever felt any of those things need no further description. We feel trembly, we feel restless, we may have uh, certain symptoms such as butterflies in the gut, or a dry mouth, or sweaty palms. Many of the very familiar autonomic uh, manifestations of anxiety. Dr. Fader, let me interrupt just a moment now. Are these... Uh themselves a part of apprehension or are these separate manifestations of anxiety? These are things which occur concurrently with this sense that something is going to happen. A person may feel apprehensive and be aware that his heart is racing or that he uh, has a dry mouth or that he has uh, sweaty palms. I think these go together. They are different manifestations of the same thing. Well, uh, thank you. Dr. Kleinschmidt, <laughs> uh, you're still well, not satisfied. Yes, uh, Dr. <laughs> Kleinschmidt, maybe you could help me. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Kleinschmidt, what I want to do is to say, for instance, that apprehension is to me the most common manifestation. Second, uh, probably palpitation. Third, maybe precordial distress. 
Now, what would you say are the manifestations of anxiety, listing them somewhat like this? I find that we ought to be very careful about trying to list these manifestations because a patient may come to the internist and have uh, precordial anxiety, precordial distress, and talk about his past history, but dissimulate the precordial distress and anxiety. And unless the internist is very alert to the fact that the patient, for instance, wants his blood pressure taken, and that he tells him that his father died of a heart attack not long ago, he may not realize that this patient actually is extremely anxious, but he doesn't verbalize it. Dr. Kaufman? Not every individual who has anxiety and has somatic concomitants of anxiety is necessarily going to have all of these things in sequence. One thing we do know is there are gut people, there are cardiac people, there are people who have difficulty in breathing, and this is what I think is the danger of saying. There are 14 different manifestations, and they come in this way. They may come in clusters of three or four, or you may have the whole gamut of them. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Now, there is one aspect that we haven't covered here yet, and that is the psychotherapeutic use of drugs in the treatment of anxiety states. Now, Dr. Fader, I'd like to begin with you and ask, are there any drugs that uh, are of help in treatment of the anxiety state? And if so, which ones? Well, of course, we're coming to the end now of what has been called the tranquilizer decade. It was during this time that all these uh, psychotherapeutic drugs have come along. They are usually classified uh, according to the major areas that they affect. And so we have drugs which are called anti-anxiety drugs, drugs which are referred to as anti-psychotic drugs, and antidepressant drugs. There is one group which is particularly useful in treating many aspects of anxiety, these are the so-called minor tranquilizers. Just to list them, they are the old-fashioned barbiturates. There's meprobamate, chlordiazepoxide, and diazepam. These are the usual drugs for anxiety. These generally are the broad groups that are used in the anxiety states, and of course each uh, situation would require a variance in the drug depending upon the uh, indication and the individual. Isn't that correct? Not exactly. I, I don't think that a particular kind of anxiety situation calls for a particular kind of drug. I think rather a particular individual might call for a particular drug. We don't understand why one drug works in one person and not in another when it does work. Therefore, I think you have to be familiar with the drugs of this group and understand their indications and use one or another according to how the individual responds, not only therapeutically, but in terms of sensitivity and side effects. Dr. Kaufman? I think uh, one thing that should be added, in our experience at the hospital, at least my experience, some of the members of the staff seem to have more success with drug A than drug B for conditions that are not unlike and others seem to have more success for these kinds of conditions with drug B than drug A. Now, it's easy to think of this in terms of placebo effect and suggestion, but there does seem to be a kind of patient and a kind of doctor that, with a specific drug, seem to work better. Now, about drugs, there has been a tremendous advance 
in the use of drugs. I think the combination of the drug at a specific time, plus the relationship we talked about, plus psychotherapy, in many instances can do much more within a given space of time than the drug itself or psychotherapy itself. Now, Dr. Kleinschmidt, those of us that are not psychiatrists often are amused at psychiatrists, maybe wrongly so, because they always seem to base the diagnosis or the problem either upon childhood or upon sex. Now, what possible effect could childhood have upon the development in anxiety in the older patient? All of us develop patterns in life. These patterns start very early. The feeling of smallness, for instance, is interestingly repeated in adults again and again. The patient who comes to you and complains about this competitive life of ours and how inadequate he feels. Now, if he uh, complains greatly and at length about a feeling of inadequacy, you may be better able to uh, help him and to understand him if you ask him a few questions about how inadequate, how small he felt vis-a-vis -vis an older sister or an older brother. In other words, we can trace back excessive feelings of anxiety to childhood experiences with brother, sister, and other figures in the environment. Dr. Kaufman? The impact of childhood on an individual's personality was known way before Freud. Now, you may laugh at us psychiatrists about sex. We'll laugh right back at you. But about, Sex is nothing to laugh about. <laughs> well, I don't really think that this is a startling thing. I don't think the psychiatrists invented this out of whole cloth. I do think that a psychiatrist may say, this is it that did this and so on. And he may be completely wrong. But the fact that childhood experiences going back extremely early are tremendously significant for the individual is something that can't be gainsaid. Dr. Fader? Let me give you an example. A 65-year-old woman is sent to me because she has severe arthritis of the neck, has been told that she's going to have to spend part of each day in bed. This is a businesswoman. As a result of this information, she goes into a very severe depression. Now, most of my friends say, well, what good does it do you to know what this woman was like when she was six? Well, when I find out that at the age of six, this is a woman who lived in a household where she had to be independent, where she could rely on no one, then I know what threat confronts this woman with the prospects of being a semi-invalid and with having to go to bed. And in this particular instance, and I quote the good ones, a discussion of this, first of all, an understanding that this is the way the woman has lived her life, a way in which she depended upon no one. I set out to teach her how to really depend upon me and confide in me, and not only did she not have to go to bed with her arthritis, but her depression was improved. So that people develop patterns in the first years of life. These patterns remain. We react much later to any occurrence in life in somewhat the same pattern. That's why it's so important to know what happened earlier. It gives you the cue as to how to deal with the current problem. Dr. Fader, I'd like to uh, present a case and tell me how you would have handled this. This was a lady who had cancer of the colon three years ago. For about the past six months, she has been having symptoms that are related undoubtedly to metastasis, but she herself is convinced 
that these symptoms are due to a gallbladder that was removed 26 years ago. Now, if this patient presented herself to you, as she has to me, how would you handle it? Well, first of all, is this a patient who was told or uh, who knew she had cancer three years ago? Yes, she was told and did know that she had cancer. Well, to draw from my own experience, and this is what I have to do because I know nothing about the characteristics of this patient, if a patient knows that she has had cancer and comes in with a series of complaints, I at some time or another relate this to whether or not she worries about it having to do with the cancer. I would bring this question out into the open. I would then take my cue from that, that if she says, I thought about it and I've dismissed it, and I'm sure that it's something else, then I think we have to follow a path which is not unlike our dealing with anxiety in other instances. We have to recognize that this woman is very anxious about it. We have to recognize that she needs me as the physician to share this anxiety, to share this worry. We have to recognize that she wants me to do what I can regardless of what I call it. So it's not necessary to force upon this woman the knowledge that she has recurrence, or it's not necessary to force her to admit that this is what she's worried about. All you have to do is, by your question, let her know that you know that this is something that she might be worried about, and to let her know that you will do whatever there has to be done, whatever the cause of it. Very illustrative. Now, it would seem to me, Dr. Kaufman, that the primary solution to this problem of anxiety lies within the patient himself and the way that the physician handles that particular patient in regard to their anxiety. Would you summarize our feelings in these regards? Yes. I think ultimately all patients' problems are solved in terms of the reaction of the patient. I don't think that we can by our authority say to a patient, now look, don't be anxious or as we very frequently trying to reassure a patient, say, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, take my authority for it. So ultimately, whether the therapy attempted is reassurance, insight, with a combination of drugs or without drugs, it is what happens within the patient that becomes a significant and important thing. The physician is not an adjunct only. He is somebody that's involved in a series of transactions with the patient. But the transaction has to have an effect through the patient rather than only through the physician. Thank you very much, and thank all three of you on this panel. And thank you, Dr. Witten. On the next record in this series of psychiatric consultations, you will hear Drs. Kaufman, Kleinschmidt, and Fader discuss the patient who is chronically anxious the anxiety of the terminal patient, and anxiety in the physician himself. Look for it in your mail.